here on Fuzzy Logic talking about the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. This is the Night of Night, the Oscars of Science in Australia. We're going to find out who wore the best black ties and black dresses and who won the awards. Coming up today here on Fuzzy Logic. Morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us this morning as we transition from the Irish world into the world of science. And joining me in the studio today to take part in this world of science is Karina. Good morning, Karina. Good morning, Broderick. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you here. Um, and today we are going to be covering the big awards ceremony that happened earlier this week, which is the Prime Minister's Prizes for Science. A huge night on Wednesday night. I indeed, indeed. Up at the uh, Australia, a Great Hall at Parliament House and uh, attended by over uh, 450 members of Parliament, distinguished scientists, science educators and leaders of science, the science community. Truly the who's who of Australian science. With over $700,000 up in cash prizes for a bunch of Australia's leading scientists. That's pretty amazing. Mm. And some beautiful gold medals as well. That yeah, you get as actual part of Australian gold. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's better than, you know, those shiny little statuettes that you get over in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, no, they're nothing compared to a Prime Minister's Prize. Indeed. indeed. And there's a lot less Prime Minister's Prize for science winners uh, than they give out Oscars. That's so right. I feel like you're a part of a much more elite list. I, I know. With only six awards this year, uh, you really had to be the, the creme de la creme. Indeed. Indeed. Um, now, if you haven't heard of these awards before, they're awarded annually uh, by the Prime Minister, surprisingly enough, um, and they're public recognition and tribute to the contributions of our scientists, innovators and science teachers as well, who are all working together to make Australia's current and future uh, scientific and commercial capabilities even better than they are. Uh, they have come in a range of categories. There's the Prime Minister's Prize for Science, which is the overall one, Prime Minister's Prize for Innovation, uh, Innovative New Technologies, and we'll hear more about those soon. Uh, there's also the Frank Fenner Prize for Life Scientist of the Year and the Malcolm McIntosh Prize for Physical Scientist of the Year, as well as the Prime Minister's Prizes for Excellence in Science Teaching for both primary and secondary teachers. So a range of different awards on offer there. And we're going to jump straight into it. We're going to jump in at the deep end, I think, Karina. Yes. And kick it off with the big winner, the overall Prime Minister's Prize for Science this winner, which was taken away by Professor Jenny Graves. Now, Professor Graves has been uh, in the science world for quite a while. Uh, she actually kicked off uh, studying uh, when... Uh, she was, well, of course she was at university when she started studying. Well, you don't have to start initially, I guess. And, and when she first looked at science, the story goes that she wasn't actually interested in high school. Uh, oh, a common story for it, successful scientists, isn't it? That's right, until she had that one moment where her biology teacher started talking about genetics, genes, and breeding budgies, of all things. Is that the spark? That, that was her spark. Um, and she was hooked from that time on, decided that she was going to do science at university, uh, so did a master's degree in genetics at the University of Adelaide, a PhD in cell biology at uh, UC Berkeley over in the USA, and then returned to Australia establishing research at La Trobe University. Oh, wow. Yeah, so pretty, pretty uh, illustrious uh, career at that point. Um, to give you some idea of how long uh, Professor Graves has been in science, her first honours work was published in 1967. Um, so I think my parents were children then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She's got a whole lot of experience uh, in the world of science. Interestingly, she actually started, and I think this is kind of the thing, quite often scientists transition through and develop and and find an area that interests them or they might make their way across. Mm. She started with research on um, the Tamar Wallaby mm. and then some of her big breakthroughs later on in her career came by studying the Tamar Wallaby oh, and the wow. genetics behind that. So she hasn't strayed too far. She found her niche really early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So her honours research was looking at... Um, 
the inactivation of the X chromosome in the Tamar wallaby. Yeah, she has the, uh, she's got the, the research, isn't it, that the uh, X chromosome is slowly declining. Uh, the Y chromosome oh, is slowly y chromosome, de- declining. Yeah, yeah. So the X chromosome, uh, so humans have either mm. X, X or XY generally mm. in terms of chromosomes, XX being female mm-hmm. and XY being male. Mm. And um, as I remember uh, one of my biology lecturers saying when I learned this at uni, the if we have a look at the X chromosome, it's two nicely formed chromosomes. And then you have a look at the XY chromosome and the <laughs> X chromosome is nice full and the Y is just this short stumpy little thing yeah um, she thought that was a, a, a interesting comment on you know males mm. versus females I, <laughs> I will get in trouble if I comment any further on that <laughs> that's right well and, it, and it's an interesting thing so yeah she studied the X chromosomes in Tamar wallabies as it appeared to slowly be deactivated but yeah some of her research later on was looking at the Y chromosome and what's mm. going on with that um, and so, as we, we've said, you know, the Y chromosome is a, a gender-determining chromosome. Um, it works out whether you've got the sperm and testes or not. Uh, and some people thought, initially, her research thought that maybe the Y chromosome would become extinct uh, because it was slowly disappearing. Mm. Um what they found was that the Y chromosome pub- plummeted from a super Y, so initially a full full chromosome of more than 1,400 genes several million years ago, to just a nubby little stump uh, with several dozen genes. So how long do you think they've got, and uh, do they think, until uh, it's no more? Well, initially... Uh, the thoughts were some for some people suggested as little as 125,000 years. That's not very far in terms of Earth life. No, no, that's <laughs> right. In terms of you know generations, mm. that's probably a few generations to come. Mm. Um, and look, that that estimation has been pushed out to around five million years. Um, and in fact. Now, people are even thinking that it could be even more stable for millions of years as well. So this is the interesting thing about this research done by Professor Graves. It came out in the early 2000s, um, and since then, over the next 10 years, more scientists have studied it, and as is the process with science, they've updated their thinking and uh, go, well, actually, no, maybe we're slightly off with, with this, this level of thinking in terms of the, the Y chromosome shrinking. So truly, the process of science is at work. That's right. That's, That's really right. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, one of the the things they had a look at. Um, to, to change it was had a look at some different uh, animals including the rhesus macaque um, which is a monkey whose uh, evolutionary path diverged from humans and chimps some 25 million years ago and what they found was that uh, at that point of divergence uh, the rhesus y chromosome hadn't lost a single ancestral gene in all this in all that time um, by comparison the human y chromosome lost one ancestral gene in that tiny segment and that just accounts for about 3% of the chromosome. So with no loss in the rhesus monkeys, only one lost in humans, and that happening, that split happening 25 million years ago, mm. I think we're probably right. Probably going to be. I mean, as a geologist, I'm like, that's just the blink of an eye, but really, it's actually a long time. <laughs> so, well, actually, that's an interesting point, is that the different time scales that uh, different... Uh, types of science operate on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk to an astronomer and they're like, that's not even worth talking about. 25 yeah. million years, what is that? <laughs> and then as we get to some of our innovators today, you mm. know, uh, six months is a huge step it's in huge. terms of them and what changes and yes. what's going on. Um, But yeah, let's take a look at some more of uh, Professor Graves' research that she's done. Uh, She's also looked at, um, we were talking about the Tamar wallaby earlier, she was involved with sequencing the genome of the Tamar wallaby. Uh, through the uh, Australian uh, Genome uh, Research Foundation. Oh, wow. So uh, we've now got a wallaby that we we know the complete genome of. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the first uh, marsupials uh, to be uh, completely sequenced. Um, So the the one that... It was a bit of a competition for a while. The one that ended up winning out was uh, the opossum in South America. Uh Um, So, yeah, the the Americans got there first. Yeah. (laughs) But um, but, uh, Professor Graves was involved with sequencing the genome of both the Tamar wallaby and the platypus too uh, to see what was going on there 
And the interesting thing was actually the while the opossum got in first, it was interesting to compare the two yes. um, to see uh, how they differ because the kangaroo and opossum are about as distant re- distantly related as humans and mice. It's further than I expected, to be honest. Yeah, because they're both marsupials. Yes. You know, they've both got lots of similarities. Um, and so what they were able to do was having both projects running. They were then able to compare the genes and work out what was, um, you know, special to, to the kangaroo mm. family, um, but then what was common to marsupials in general as so well. Really, we'd actually get a much fuller picture of um, how things have changed, you know, since the split up of like Gondwana land millions of years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's a couple of things that uh, marsupials do mm. that are a little bit different. Um, so one thing, kangaroos especially are really good at turning on and off the development of embryos. So yes. I don't know if you, uh, you, some of our listeners may know this too, but kangaroos have uh, three uh, vaginas, basically, and so they can have uh, three babies kind of in process. So they can have one in the pouch, one in the womb, and one as a backup, uh, almost. Yeah, they do that, don't they, so that uh, they can give birth when conditions are optimal really yeah yeah well that's right and and being limited in the the first place because mm. they can really only have one uh joey yeah, in the pouch time. at a time they have to make sure they can still have as many babies as possible mm. um and so part of having the the extra babies in there is they can actually uh, switch on or switch off uh the the embryos and the or the development of the embryo and so the, uh, Professor Graves thinks that maybe this could offer insights into uh, human contraception mm. and infertile couples, you know, how how sometimes uh, the fertility of people might be being switched off um, by looking at the genes of the Tamar wallaby there. Maybe you just have a par-cooked bun in the oven. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that thought of a par-cooked but yes, just, just waiting to, we'll to go in the oven. Later, yeah. yeah. What's that, that Woolworths cook fresh in store. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, And the other side of things, too, is that uh, kangaroos are also sophisticated milk producers. Um, So they're really good at producing uh, milk for their young, um, which, again, could help... Human, I was going to say Australian, but not just Australian. No, humans, all over. <laughs> humans all around the world uh, with uh, the, the health of their uh, their babies. And the other thing that might be interesting is uh, the resistance that kangaroos have to pests such as ticks, um, and knowing how the genetic basis helps to to have this um, could be useful for the beef and dairy industry too in Australia. So a lot of really useful and practical applications that we can take from this research. Yeah, totally, totally. And so it's, it's kind of uh, amazing, uh, the research that she's done in that. Um, and again, the platypus becomes even more interesting around the birth side of things because uh, platypus are in the unique category of marsupials who lay eggs. Monotremes. That's right. The only other one being the... Echidna. Indeed. Oh, pop quiz, no pressure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so there's lots of interesting research there um, that Professor Graves has performed. And so it's all this sort of research um, that uh, that has contributed to her um, winning the PM's Prize for Science. The other interesting research that I don't have too much detail on but I thought was really cool was uh, she helped build a research collaboration to sort of show how temperature and genes can determine the, uh, the sex of Australian dragon lizards too. Wow, that's really cool. Actually, I think I've heard about this one. It's really interesting. They found that when they, uh, was it warming up the eggs that you can change the the gender of the babies that hatch? Yeah, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, that um, the the there's some sort of process going on inside um, their based on the temperature of the world around them. Yeah, not so random. Yeah. Which has some interesting uh, implications, I suppose, with climate change, if... You know, if the world is heating up, does that mean that there's going to be a gender imbalance and maybe they might become endangered? Yeah, yeah, it would be uh, quite an interesting effect. And, I mean, this is one of the the interesting effects, I think, that we don't see happening in climate change is what it actually means. Um, One of the researchers that we had on Fuzzy earlier this year who was talking about... um, Research around watching. Uh, I'm, he's gonna. Nathan's gonna be annoyed that I can't remember the creatures he was looking <laughs> at. But he's looking at very small um, 
uh, snail-like creatures mm. that live on rocks in uh, beach areas mm. um, and looking at how they move based on temperature on the rocks and how things change. Mm. And, and, I mean, it seemed a bit uh, simplistic, the research in some ways, you know, and well, not simplistic, but kind of, well, what's the point of it? Why do we mm. need to know what happens when the rocks warm up? where they go and then the more we d I delved into it with Nathan he was telling me well this is all kind of to do with climate change you know if mm. we don't actually know what's going to happen when things start heating up so we better have a look at how they behave now wow. so we can understand what greater effects this might have yeah and I think that's really interesting that we just don't really know what we don't know there's all these tiny little effects we have no idea what's going to happen yeah mm, that's, that's the job of science to figure it out Indeed, indeed. And the other side of things that uh, Professor Graves has also done in terms of her science is she has been a huge uh, role model for girls and women in science in Australia, mm. um, which was uh, another important part of that and totally appropriate with the current acting Minister for Science being awesome. Mahalia Cash, yes. who is the Minister for Women. Of <laughs> so it was really great. But she's uh, introduced a, a huge range of measures uh, to help promote um, science to girls in high school and primary mm. school as they're coming through. But she was also the first to introduce measures into the Australian Academy for Science to remove gender bias from election to the fellowship um, and the forerunner of several highly effective equity programs spearheaded by the Academy. So not only is uh, she working hard in scientific research, but also working hard to bring more and more people uh, and more and more diverse people into scientific research as well. And look, the more diverse our, our scientific uh, researchers are, the, you know, the more diverse our research will be and, and for the better. That's right. That's right. The, the ideas are going to be endless mm. there. Awesome. Well, that's, that's prize winner number one, Professor Jenny Graves, AO, Prime Minister's Prize for Science winner this year. But uh, let's transition to our second prize winner now, Karina, mm. and uh, the Prime Minister's Prize for Innovation. That's right. Prime Minister's Prize for Innovation this year went to Eric Reynolds, Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. Uh, he also has an Order of Australia, also AO. Um, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned um, the scale that research... Uh, the scale that takes place in research. Um, he's actually been working for over 30 years in, in this area. So again, someone with a lot of um, really history and um, has been really working in this one area and this one passion of his for a really long time. Uh, so he's actually a dental researcher. He works at the, he's from the, uh, the Melbourne Centre for Dentistry. And 30 years ago, he was interested in these kind of anecdotal claims that dairy helped strengthen teeth. So drinking milk and eating cheese was good for your teeth. And he's like, well, that's a bit of an old wives' tale, but let's that's look right. into it. I, I remember being told that as a kid, you know, you've got to eat your, 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 drink your milk and eat your cheese, strong yeah, bones. Yeah, happy yogurt. Yeah, yeah, strong bones, strong teeth. And he's like... Yeah. Is it? <laughs> and he's like, you know what? You know, I'm really well placed. Let's actually look into this. And so he took his team in um, and actually looked at the claims. You know, does it actually help? And it turned out, yes, it does. The the um, the research when they looked into it, uh, people who had a a uh, diet rich in these kinds of dairy were at lower risk of tooth decay and gum disease and cavities and these kind of uh, things which we now know are, are somewhat preventable. Yeah, so, so the old wives were right. Yeah, they yeah. were in this case. <laughs> in this case. <laughs> so what they found that is in products like milk and cheese, there's uh, a unique form of bioavailable calcium. So it's not just straight up calcium, but it's calcium in a form that our body can actually use. Well, and, th and that's really important, the bioavailability, because mm. like, often when we, get, uh, when we talk about supplements or especially multivitamins and all those sorts of things... Sometimes it's just expensive wee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. We swallow up and it just passes straight through because it's not bioavailable. Absolutely. So this... Um, unique form of calcium, it actually was bioavailable and they figured out exactly what it was that strengthened tooth enamel and, you know, helped prevent these, you know, um, dental diseases. And so they actually turned it into a product and um, put a patent on it as uh, team. And so the product is called Recaldent, right? Re 
re as in renew, cal as in calcium, dent as in dental. Okay. That makes sense. Recalcium. Yeah. Um, and it's made, they started making it and continue to make it in Melbourne using Australian dairy. So it's a fully Australian product, which is really cool. And what they realized is that if they could put this product, recalcium, into toothpaste and sugar-free gum. So people could put it in their mouth literally every day and be working on their dental health without even really thinking about it and strengthening that tooth enamel to prevent cavities, which is really cool. So um, they got some interest from companies around the world on um, this product, and now it's available in 50 countries worldwide. The the chewing gum, the sugar-free gum that they um, that they put it into, Recal Dent, it's actually the most popular gum in Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the gum's called Recal Dent as well? There's a couple of different brands, depending okay. on who they've worked in. But there is, yeah, there is a gum called Recal Dent. I know that it was put into a gum in the U.S. called Trident. So there's a, there's a couple of different products, but they've also all got this Recal Dent ingredient right. inside of it. Um, but the, the fact that this is the most popular gum in Japan, apparently it's led to some really interesting and funny scenarios because they've actually got uh, Professor Reynolds into the advertising for it so he's like <laughs> on the sides of buses in Tokyo and he filmed a, uh, a TV ad where he didn't understand a word of what was going on so he just kind of smiled and nodded <laughs> through the whole thing with like this famous actress. <laughs> I, I love that we, we you, he, I mean he's won one of our top prizes in science, we have no idea no who idea. he is but he's big in Japan He's huge in Japan, <laughs> yeah, really popular Yeah, so I mean the this is actually solving a really big world problem because Oral disease is very prevalent right across the world. Um, just in Australia, one in four Australians have gum disease and or cavities. So some people have both. Um, and in Australia, like we go through $8 billion a year in treatment. And they reckon that this product, Recaldirt, has saved worldwide over $12 billion in treatment costs. Wow. Yeah, $12 billion. That's I huge. Even, I can't even fathom how much money that is, but it's, it's a lot, right? And saved by this one product... Uh, conceived, developed, and produced here in Australia in Melbourne. Yeah, really cool. Um, and he hasn't stopped there, which is really, really wonderful to know. So Professor Reynolds, um, he's still working on gum disease, and he's he and his team have been working on new tests and even a vaccine to uh, uh, diagnose and treat and prevent gum disease. Wow. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah, so it's still in, still in production, so it's right. still a way off, but the fact that there may be a vaccine for that, that's mm. amazing. Yeah, no, that's super amazing. Can we get recount in Australia? I believe so, yes. So it, um, uh, I mean, obviously you can get the, the calcium form in your milk and dairy products. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, having, you know, your classic good, healthy, varied diet yeah. um, is probably going to be good for you. But, yes, it is available in some... Um, a bunch of different products. Oh, awesome. Yeah, from oh. dairy products to toothpaste. So, yeah. yeah, we'll have to check it out. But that's just amazing. And I love um, the the prize for innovation there. You know, basically, in a lot of ways, innovation is doing something new, um, solving a problem. And, you know, it's just taking that science research direct to, to solving a problem and making it accessible to so many people. Absolutely, yeah. And he has. I mean, you know, 50 countries worldwide now have this available for, pe uh, for people to uh, reduce their risk of uh, tooth cavities and gum disease. Awesome. Mm. So you can have that amazing smile. <laughs> totally wise. <laughs> All right. Well, that, uh, that wraps up the first two big winners for the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. But we've got four more to go through, and uh, we'll get to those later in today's Fuzzy Logic episode. But for now, let's have a little bit of music. Francisco with Fred Astaire. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM 98.3 across Canberra. Uh, the time is 11.28 and it's Broderick and Karina in the studio. Today we're talking the Prime Minister's Prize for Science, the Academy Awards for the world of science. The who's who of research. Indeed. If you wanted to, uh, you know, get uh, get the right people studying the right stuff, you should have been there networking throughout the event. It, uh, it looked like an amazing place to be. 
Yeah, yeah look, I mean, I, I didn't get an invite to wear my ball gown, so uh, look next year, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we should. We should be there as Fuzzy Logic. As Fuzzy I'm Logic, sure Fuzzy Logic, uh, Our invite must have got lost in the mail I'm somewhere. I'm sure it'll arrive next yeah. week, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we'll be there next year yeah. to report live. But for now, you get the summary from <laughs> us here this Sunday. And uh, we're going to move on through the, May, the first couple of winners into uh, some of the more specific prizes here. And the Frank Fenner Prize for Life Scientist of the Year. Uh, and this year it went to Jian Yang, who is a, uh, a, an Australian scientist who is doing amazing work um, in the world of the human genome. We seem to be talking about genes a little bit as we go through today. Yeah, a lot of genetic uh, work. That's right, but I, I guess that's where, where things are at at mm. the moment. Um, and so Jan has been looking at ways to work out what's actually going on in the genome. We, we talked earlier uh, about uh, Professor Graves um, trying to uh, uh, find uh, sequence, that's sequence, the word I'm looking yes. for, sequence the genome of the Tamar wallaby, mm -hmm. and uh, she's also been involved with the platypus and that sort of thing, and, and we've sequenced the human genome now too. That was a huge project. It was. Across different countries, and it was a giant undertaking. Yeah, a massive thing. Um, but it's all well and good to do that, but what that actually tells us is very little. Yes. Unless we actually put in <laughs> some investigation, um, because what they get out of it is a whole lot of... Um, DNA sequencing, ACGTs and mm. all that sort of stuff, which are the bases involved in DNA. It's like a giant code. And, and we know there's bits of that code that do certain things. But which bit does what thing is not always clear. Exactly, exactly. And so this is part of what Jian's doing in uh, his research, is trying to unravel that complexity and solve uh, the, the different things. Well, and part of it is called, uh, the missing heritability paradox. Um, Ooh, paradox, that sounds exciting. <laughs> well, and, and basically he's trying to work out what we inherit from our uh, parents mm. and and why things don't always necessarily align as they should when mm. we inherit genes. It's not all Punnett squares, is it? No, no, and, and I think that's a prime example. I don't know if uh, you did first-year biology at uni, Karina. No, I'm a, I'm a pure geologist You're here. just geologist? <laughs> you were just l licking the rocks? Yes, um, <laughs> and occasionally the minerals, all right. <laughs> My focus was really chemistry, but I did occasional bits of biology, and one, one of the things we were asked to do in first-year biology was to go home and do a family survey mm. of um, certain characteristics of our family. Mm. And um, some of them were simple things like whether the earlobe is dangle, dangles or is attached. Connected, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one was... Uh, eye colour is a classic. Yes, eye colour was a wonderful one. Mm. Um, and uh, the other one we had was we got little um, squares of paper to take home which yes. were soaked in quinine. Um, oh. And quinine is apparently regular. Uh, so everyone can generally taste quinine, uh, mm. but some people can taste it in a really strong way. So when it's in low concentrations, mm. they can still taste it and it's really bitter to them and really strong. Is that why I really don't like gin and tonic? Uh, potentially, potentially. The tonic, the, so quinine is the, the ingredient that gives tonic its classic and really... Uh, Distinctive taste, <laughs> yeah. but it's bitter. Yeah, uh, it's um, the the true test is to see if you can taste it in really low concentrations. Yeah. Um, but if you don't like tonic water, yeah, it's Probably. highly likely that that's there. Um, so yes, yeah, so I went round and gave my families all these little bits of paper to taste to see whether anyone was a super quinine taster. Mm. Um, and no one was. I do enjoy gin and tonic. My grandpa drinks tonic water on its own. So, you know, I think, I think in our family it runs that we, we don't have that gene. Um, but these are all inheritable traits that we have. Yes. But they're generally only controlled by one gene. Mm. So it's either uh, active or inactive, uh, which gives us these certain traits. Our ears, our earlobes are pendulous or attached. Our eyes are blue or brown. Mm. Um, we can, we're super tasters of quinine or not. Mm. But other things, uh, other genes are a little bit harder 
to identify what's actually causing them. Um, oh, sorry, not other genes, other traits. Mm. It's harder to identify the genes that are influencing those. Um, an interesting one, but reasonably simple still, but slightly interesting, is height. Mm. Um, and height is is a few different genes there. They're pretty sure that play into height. So it's not just one height gene um, that comes into it. Um, but a whole host that work in together in a, a complex way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so when you start looking at more and more traits, the genes that start to control it can become more and more. And when you get too many uh, players in there having influence, it's really hard to work out what influence they're actually having. Yeah, you can't untangle that story. No, no, that's right. It's like, you know, trying to uh, improve a, a recipe or something like that, and maybe if you, um, you know, you're making dough and you increase the water, that might make it s slightly better, but then you need to increase the yeast, but mm. then that changes things again. And, and the sugar is involved. And, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a whole lot of different things that come together. And so to work out what's going on, um, you could try a whole range of experiments to see a whole range of different things that happen. Change each one a little bit each time and control your variables. Exactly. But that does become difficult when we're talking about genes. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> some ethics involved. And, and time-wise, too, mm. if we were to do it like that and, yeah, and work out the analyses, there'd be hundreds of analyses to go through. So what Professor Jian Yang's research was doing was looking at uh, statistics um, and applying them to that genetics uh, profile. So using mathematics to unravel what's going on in humans. That's right, that's wow. right. And the maths, uh, because we're getting more and more complicated with our statistics and the way we're going through, um, the the way he was able to do it was to develop this uh, statistical testing um, to, to work out what's actually going on. And it was really interesting because many people thought that um, the, the calculations that were needed for this would be too complex, even for today's computers. Yes. Um, you know... You, it's crunching a lot of numbers in a very short amount of time, right? That, yeah, that's right. And uh, Jian was able to prove everyone wrong by developing some statistical tools and uh, studies to find the missing genetic variation uh, for things. So changes that were being seen uh, from generation to generation, but people weren't sure what genes were causing this. He's been able to identify those missing uh, genes in there. And so Jian's been looking at traits such as height, uh, obesity, and schizophrenia as well, so for mental wow. health, and found that there's a large number of associated variants across that human genome. Uh, so he can, he's been able to show that, you know, there's lots of different things being taken into account here, which is, is fantastic. You know, there's, I mean, in some ways it just highlights how complicated we are. Yes. Yeah, we are all complex beings in many layers to that statement. That's right. It's not just a range of different switches on and off. Each of those switches mm. helps impact other switches. Um, and so, yeah, through Jian's work, he's uh, had 97 papers published, uh, 30 of them in Nature or Nature Genetics, which is like one of the top end papers yes. to get in there once is a life goal for many scientists. Yes. Um, and he's been in there 30 times and so his work is basically opening up a new era of genome analysis uh, using the tools that he's developed and making them available to the wider research community so they can really take um, these ideas out there and start looking at uh, other parts of the gene too. Yeah that's really exciting because you know as you said it's all well and good to have one genome sequence, but it's really in that comparison that we start to see and understand what's really going on. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, it's just beautiful to see these, um, the, the maths and the science coming together to, to make it useful for everyone. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you might know this about me, but I am all for cross-disciplinary research. Um, and that kind of leads in really nicely to the winner of the Malcolm McIntosh Prize for Physical Scientists of the Year, uh, Professor Jin Dae-Yung. Um, so he's a professor at the University of Technology in Sydney. 
Uh, and he also has a really cool project of, you know, taking the science of one area and applying it to the science of another. So he's taken physics and the way that um, we understand things to work over there and also brought it across to biology. Uh, so he's been working on a brand new type of microscope. So we have our, you know, a microscope that you might have used before where you look down a tube and it just magnifies it with a series of lenses and light. Um, maybe you've used or heard of or seen photographs of a scanning electron microscope. So I've been lucky enough to be able to use one before and um, what it does is literally um, shoots electrons at... Um, a, a very small thing which you've coated in I coated my samples in pure gold I had tiny minerals um, sprayed them with gold and then when you put it into this scanning electron microscope it, um, the electrons bounce off that gold and it's the the pattern of how they all bounce off that you can actually see the shape of things. So it basically gives you an image yes. from that. That's amazing. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, and so now we have a different kind of microscope again. Um, and this one, you might have heard of quantum dots. Well, this one actually goes next step and uses what we call super dots, tau dots, and hyper dots, which are all different types of fluorescent molecules, more sensitive than quantum dots. And what it does is it allows us to see individual molecules within living cells without killing them. Right. Yeah. So, oh. It's very complex. It took yeah. me hours to get wrap my head around it. I'm still not sure that I do. But it's really cool because what we can actually see is individual molecules. So um, the actual chemistry that's going on inside the cells that make up living things and we're not killing them off, we're not using heat, we're not using lasers which are w ways that we've looked at cells in the past mm. um, kind of on that molecular level and the cool thing is it helps us diagnose, uh, see unhealthy or cancerous cells um, they reckon it's kind of that actually compared it to being able to find the needle in a haystack they have been able to find one cancerous cell within a part of a million cells, a million healthy cells. Wow. So that's the that's kind huge. of... Yeah, and that's the kind of precision. Um, uh, Dale was, uh, had this really lovely analogy, which I really liked. He was talking about um, navigating. So if you think about, um, you know, it wasn't even that long ago, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago, if you went to Sydney and maybe you're in an unfamiliar part, and you needed to go to a particular address, you'd have to pull out the old Sidway book, right? Mm. You have to find the index, you have to find the reference map, you have to find the actual map, and you have to find where you are, and use the, like, it was complex, right? And you had to navigate around. Now you just plug your address into Google Maps, right? You use GPS and satellite navigation, and it kind of is able to direct you where to go. He says that when it comes to finding, you know, diseased cells, biologists are still using paper maps. Right. <laughs> and with this kind of technology, we might be moving towards that satellite navigation in terms of biology. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, uh, they're working on cancer detection. Now, so one of the really cool applications of this is that instead of, because of the precision of being able to find unhealthy cells, they can detect cancer using a sample of urine instead of taking a biopsy. Oh wow! So we, when we've got cancerous cells in our body, that's that's coming out in our urine, and they yes. just find it in there in super yep. small quantities. That's right. Wow! By that's making amazing. them literally light up with these um, with these dots. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's really lovely in that um, there's heaps of really cool applications with this kind of technology, and um, Daeung is, is absolutely working towards this. He's got five patients, and he said that, um, you know, when you were mentioning the number of papers, you know, all of our witnesses today, they're all prolific researchers mm. and, and have been publishing for a long time in really high-impact journals and have patents, and, you know, they've been working really hard and really... Um, f with a, a great amount of passion and drive in their field, all, f all four of our researchers that we're talking about today. Um, so, uh, Daeung is actually commercialising his microscope. He's working with companies like Olympus to turn it into an actual product, and he's hoping to make it uh, portable and affordable enough that uh, companies can use it uh, not only to detect disease, but also to, to detect... Um, toxins and uh, both in our food supply mm. 
Yeah. Uh, so that if there is, um, you know, accidental toxins in our in our food or water, that we can trace them um, at really really low concentrations. But also in the environment, you know, is our water source okay? Is our soil okay? Um, that kind of stuff. And um, you know, there's all sorts of other applications in making like anti-counterfeit uh, ink for um, important documents and and our money. Now, even talking about um, being able to develop motorcycle safety um, and being able to have optics that um, using the, these dots uh, that uh, help um, avoid and see crashes before they happen. So, yeah, I know, Sorry. it's going yeah, pretty now wild. Now going to predicting the future. I know. <laughs> it, oh, just really exciting possibilities, I think, is the, the big takeaway. Yeah. Here. Yeah, all stemming from these tiny little glowing dots. Tiny, tiny little glowing dots. Yeah, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, just a wonderful application of um, the, the physical science into the biological world there. Mm. Yeah. Truly. Awesome. All right. Well, before we uh, finish off these prizes, there were a couple of uh, Prime Minister's Prizes awarded to teachers as mm. well. And teachers play such a hugely important role in uh, in inspiring the next generation to come into science and uh, spark that motivation. You know, as we heard from the Prime Minister's Prize for Science winner, Professor Jenny Graves, it was having that uh, Year 12 biology teacher talking about genetics that made her go, oh, Maybe this is something I can do. So it's fantastic that teachers are honoured at this event as well. Mm. And uh, the the two teachers awarded this year um, were both amazing recipients. The Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching for Secondary Schools went to Brett McKay, who's over at Kirrawee High School in New South Wales. And uh, it's interesting there because Kirrawee is uh, known for its sport and its music. Mm. They have six Olympic athletes, several leading musicians come from the school. Yes. And so science kind of gets put by, by the side when, mm. uh, when you've got the sport and music focus. Mm -hmm. But Brett has managed to make science a focus for many students there and help students find their love and passion and see it as a career path too. Uh, He's uh, he's done a lot of work helping uh, showcase uh, links to the curriculum with the outside world um, and brought in scientists to the school at every opportunity uh, with lecturers from the University of New South Wales, Sydney Observatory, Greenpoint Observatory, the Australian Institute of Physics, uh, along with ensuring uh, that he brought in plenty of uh, female scientists as well uh, to help showcase to his female students that science is something that they can get into too and have a career in. Um, and, it's, and it's been helping show these careers in science that has really enhanced uh, what his students are doing. They can see that um, science is more than just formulas, it's real world applications and they're all, many more are now considering a career in science. Uh, in just this year he's seen a 10% boost in girls studying physics thanks to events like growing tall poppies at Anstow and other science uh, external events there. So. Uh, you know, Brett uh, is a, an amazing science teacher, uh, also working really hard with uh, science teachers around the state as well. He's former president of the uh, Science Teachers Association of New South Wales mm. um, and uh, and doing amazing work there. But uh, I think to, to quote a former student is probably the best way to end it for Brett. He encouraged thinking and instead of spoon feeding us he encouraged us to think back to first principles. He inspired me and many of my classmates to take up further education at university. So Brett's philosophy is is to confuse students, to help them through that confusion and uh, to help them find the joy in science there. Oh, that's, what a wonderful quote there from a student. Yeah, that's right. It's not many. Uh, there's plenty of special teachers out there, but that sounds like really amazing work that he's doing. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure his students are absolutely beaming with pride that, uh, that their teacher has been recognised in such a way. Mm, indeed. Oh, so so wonderful. So the, the winner for the um, uh, science teacher uh, in primary schools, uh, was um, uh, from Mount Usley Public School, Neil Branson. Uh, and he was recognised for his work in outdoor classrooms. 
So rather than being inside, sitting in the classroom, talking about the beach down the road or talking about the trees and, and this and that and talking about how maps works, he's taken that into a really hands-on, let's go outside and let's actually do the science. And I, I really like this, uh, this story uh, that uh, so, uh, they were sharing about what he actually, one of the projects that he did with the students is that the, the kindy students, um, they have a sand pit and um, it found itself through a variety of uh, reasons, it found itself empty of sand and the kindy students were very sad about this as you, I'm sure you can imagine. And so what he got his uh, the senior primary school students to do was actually figure out well, how much sand do we need to figure it out to fill it up, and how do we how do we fix this problem? So uh, that was their assignment was to figure out okay, well, how much sand do we need? How much do we need in volume? Okay, well, how big is sand? How much weight does that mean need? All right, well, let's ring up the sand company and order it. And so these primary school students actually took the lead um, and took the initiative in getting the sand pit filled back up through <laughs> their science studies. And I think that's really really sweet. Yeah. Um, they he encourages students, for example, to do uh, so. Mount Oosley is uh, near Wollongong uh, in New South Wales on the south coast there, and um, they've been doing marine debris surveys uh, up and down the beach just down the road. Um, they're um, what they've been doing is actually going in um, with mentorship from CSIRO scientists of how to correctly do a survey and looking at. Uh, I think it was pollution levels and, and litter that's on the beach and um, surveying it and cleaning it up and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's really cool. Um, uh, so Mr. Branson as well has uh, um, been hooking his students up with uh, science um, mentors from a, a bunch of uh, different places, as I said, CSIRO, but um, NASA from Yellowstone National Park, USGS, um, and, and really looking at a range of these outdoor sciences from um, climatology to geology, um, geography, biology, all sorts of really wonderful things and looking at it in that cross-curricular kind of approach and very hands-on. Yeah, no, that's awesome because, in, you know, school is supposed to prepare us for life but life doesn't happen within the four walls of school and it doesn't happen in you know the perfect theoretical way does it <laughs> no, no. So it's awesome to be exploring science as it really is yeah no spherical cows here <laughs> indeed all right well uh, let's have a short music break and when we come back uh, we've actually covered all the pm's prizes for science mm. um so i think it's time for a, a little bit of myth busting when we get back from this science uh, of the week indeed Mumford and Sons there with I Will Wait. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. It's 11.55, which means we've got five minutes left for some new science that's come out this week. Oh, quick science. Quick, quick science, science round. Indeed. Well, and this one's an interesting study because it's not necessarily new science, but it's... Um, trying to get the science out to people about what's going on in the world of sunscreen. And very timely with summer on the way. It's exactly. We've got, got the fluff through. Spring's well and truly yeah. here. Summer is coming. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just this week, the Cancer Council of Australia released a study um, to the public uh, of a survey they did with uh, over 3,500 people. And what they found was only 55% of Australians recognised it was safe to use sunscreen every day and one in five people thought using sunscreen regularly would result in not having enough vitamin D and even worse, 17% People believe sunscreen contained ingredients that were bad for their health. That's so concerning because sunscreen has been well and truly proven to be safe and to prevent skin cancer, including the very deadly melanoma. Yeah, and, and you know, wearing sunscreen daily, it, it really does help prevent these, this, you know, disease. That's right. Two in three Australians are going to be diagnosed with skin cancer in their lifetime. And so sunscreen plays a really important role in stopping that. And sunscreens in Australia are strictly regulated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to ensure that the ingredients they contain are both safe 
and effective. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of concern over this, but it's all misplaced. Mm. Um, many studies have shown that sunscreen use in real life doesn't impact vitamin D levels over time. Um, in and, so- and of course, vitamin D. You know there are concerns about it because uh, vitamin D helps our body take on calcium. Ah, yeah, so, we need to so make it- really can't be back that recalled it, <laughs> right. uh, but from our Prime Minister's Prime for Innovation. <laughs> Indeed, and so it is important that we get vitamin D, and I of think course. for a while there was um, some concern that we were all being too slip, slop, slap heavy mm. um, and stopping vitamin D, but it has been shown that in summer most of us get enough vitamin D through incidental skin, uh, sun exposure. That's right, uh, simply having your hands and arms um, uh, out, um, sitting next to a window, you're going to get your vitamin D. Exactly. It's all good there. Mm. Sunscreen sensitivity, it does exist. It's Mm -hmm. a very rare condition. Most people will have no reaction to sunscreen whatsoever. Um, But, you know, if you do have a reaction, follow it up with a health professional. Um, But it is a rare thing. The only uh, people who do have to be particularly careful with it is young babies. Mm. Uh, And so... Not using sunscreen on babies in the first six months of life is a pretty good idea. Using uh, hats and, and sunglasses instead. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do the um the slip and the no the slap slap and the slip slide, not the slop. Yeah. Yeah, and and the slide. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and of course, always seeking shade. So sitting under, you know, you can get those little beach tents, finding a shady tree, and getting kind of that incidental sun exposure rather than sitting out baking like a British tourist. Yeah, that's right. And the other important thing that I've learnt from this as well is that uh, it's important to apply the right amount of sunscreen. So how much sunscreen should you apply on your body? A bit. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like a blob? A blob. So for each limb, you should have about a teaspoon of sunscreen. Right, so a really big blob. That's right. So you've got a teaspoon for each limb, so that's mm-hmm. two arms, two legs, one in front for the torso, one teaspoon for the back, and one teaspoon for your head. So in total, I mean, I think this is that's assuming... That's more than a tablespoon. That, well, it's seven teaspoons or 35 mils of um, sunscreen. I do not use enough sunscreen. Yeah, look, I think they're making some assumptions here that the whole body is bare. Yeah. Um, if you're using that, <laughs> but but for each part of your body that's bare, you need about a teaspoon of sunscreen. Look, with some of the fashions uh, that particularly <laughs> young ladies like myself like to wear, you do need to actually uh, kind of assume that your your body is unprotected. Some of those yeah. sheer shirts, I have been burned with slits. <laughs> so I'm like, I just need to cover up to my shoulders. No, I did not. Um, you. Re- I I don't think you can be too careful.